Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Ben, and in this episode of the Smoking Hot Confessions Barbecue Podcast, I'm chatting with a pitmaster who also happens to be an expert in agriculture and primary production. Hey family, I hope you're well wherever you are and you got that thin blue smoke rolling. This is episode 109 of the Smoking Hot Confessions Barbecue Podcast. Now before we get into this, I do want to just uh, throw a couple of announcements out there to you and just uh, get you caught up on on where we are and and what we're doing. So coming up soon is the Townsville Barbecue Battle in a virtual format this year. So if you've been watching me through the socials, you will have seen that I went up there last year and it was just phenomenal. But of course, 2020 being the wonderful, wonderful sarcasm year that we've had, um, it's it's moving into an online format and they've really thought it out and it looks really cool and um, they're going to be live streaming through their Facebook page throughout the whole day. So they're going to have a live music stage set up, which they'll be live streaming. Um, they've got the, the competition, of course. They're going to have some cooking demos. Uh, myself, um, I'll, I'll be doing one and also uh, Chris Davey from Smoking Hot Bros. We're going to be doing some chats with pitmasters with live crosses to their houses, which is actually really cool when you think about it. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff as well. So I actually interviewed uh, Dan Wolchewski, who's one of the co-founders of the event in last week's episode. So if you haven't caught that yet, make sure you jump back after you've listened to this one and, uh, and, and catch up on what's happening with that. Now, the key here is to make sure that you like their event page on Facebook. That's Townsville Barbecue Battle on Facebook. Make sure you like that, but also make sure you turn on the notifications for their page. That way, whenever they go live, your phone will let you know and you can tune on in. Now, if you're watching on Facebook, please give this video a like and a share. If you're on YouTube, give us a subscribe, hit that little bell. And if you're listening to the podcast, please give us a rating and a review on whatever podcast app you're using. It only takes a minute of your time and it really helps us to share the barbecue love for this scene that we're all just uh, absolutely passionate about. So now today's episode, I'm heading down to South Australia. Well, the internet is taking me to South Australia. I'm going to be talking with a pitmaster who's also an expert in agriculture and primary production. His team is one of the hottest on the South Australian barbecue scene at the moment, and they've just released a new range of rubs to the market. So if you haven't worked it out yet, I'm talking with Tom Davin from Smoky Pastures Barbecue. Today, we're going to learn about his team and his rubs. We're going to find out about how COVID has affected the beef industry in Australia, which is going to be really interesting. And then we're going to take a deep dive into cattle as a broader topic. So we're going to find out about diet and we're going to try and put to bed this whole grass or grain fed uh, discussion. And then we're going to wrap up with a lesson on resting meats, why it's important and how to schedule it into your cooks, particularly if you're uh, cooking in a competitive team. So without further ado, let's get into it. This is the internationally awarded Smoking Hot Confessions Barbecue Podcast. With your host, Ben Arnott. How long has it been since your last confession? Alrighty, Tom. Welcome to the confessional, my friend. Thank you for joining me tonight. Yeah, it's a pleasure, Ben. Thanks for having me, mate. Oh, anytime. So tell me, how are you? How you been? Yeah, good. Um, quite busy. Uh, so work-wise, it's been busy. Um, and yeah, we've been uh, get, uh, getting ready for the launch of these few rubs, which is um, becoming a little bit more than a hobby now, which is how it sort of started out. Uh, but you know, lots of cooking life, life keeps sort of ticking along. So yeah, pretty good. 
That's good. And so the all this business that's been happening lately with the COVID hasn't hasn't thrown you out too much. Um, yeah, obviously it takes a bit of adjusting. Um, I think not seeing people regularly is is very different. You know, uh, it's we've missed out on at least two barbecue comps that we were going to go to, so that's a bit bit of a sad one. But uh, you know, me being in ag- agriculture and primary production, uh, my job hasn't really been affected um and my wife's a, a doctor so she's an essential worker um so you know kids have kept going to childcare, and we just have really boring weekends now <laughs> so <laughs> it's yeah it's been interesting but um obviously a lot of other people have been you know much more significantly affected so yeah that's that's really good to hear and uh, i'm i'm happy for you mm-hmm. so uh, okay tell us about um about smoky pastures barbecue fill us in on the team yeah, so uh, we're a two-man operation uh, based in Adelaide, South Australia. Myself and uh, Matthew Knowles, uh, we're just old-school mates from uh, from high school, and uh, we we work together in the same business. So um, it was a family business up until about six months ago uh, called Pasture Genetics, and um, we both work out at a research farm. Um, I think he got a. I think he got a rotisserie spit for his 21st birthday. He he bought himself a spit as his 21st birthday present. And uh, that's where we first started experimenting with, you know, charcoal cooking and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's just something we've been loving for years. And uh, about oh, early 2018, I found out, um, being the competitive person I am, that you can, um, you can do cooking as a sport. Uh, and... Um, uh, with some young kids, you know, just arrived and whatever, and thought that was something I could do at home, and and yeah, we just we started going hard, basically. So yeah. And so, how many how many comps do you have under your belt now? Uh, not as many as we'd like, to be perfectly honest. Uh, I think the team's been to about seven comps. Um, okay. We waited a bit to go to our first one. We sort of went to Fat Drip in 2018 as our first one. Uh, and then 2019, we did, uh, five, no, four comps as a team. Um, so trying to mainly get to all the South Australian ones that are easy for us to get to. Uh, and then we capped it off in November last year. We went over to Kangaroo Valley, um, which was unreal. And, um, then we got up in smoke just in the nick of time, really at the start of this year in Adelaide. And then, you know, the COVID happened. So we were planning on doing all the all the SA circuit uh, and over to Horsham for meet me, but um, yeah, we'll just have to see if we get if we get another comp in, you know, for the rest of the year. That'll be awesome. But um, otherwise, you know, just got to keep busy. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's not looking good for comps at this stage. I don't think. No, no, I like the sound of those uh, virtual comps. I haven't put my hat in the ring on one of those yet, but um, they do look like a fair bit of fun. So yeah. Yeah, I've I've judged on on two of them, uh, three of them now so far. Actually, there was so there was one over in WA, and uh, and two down in in Victoria, down in Melbourne mm. that I was uh, that I was a judge for. And it's a it's a pretty cruisy gig. I get to sort of hang out and uh, just sort of you know jump on some Zoom calls, talk to some people, and yeah. look at photos and go, oh yeah yeah, awesome. It's pretty cruisy. Yeah. And I get to just sit here and just drink beer in my office. Mate, it's much better than being stuck in a judge's tent. Yeah. Yeah. True. That is very, very true. Um, so you've uh, set yourself up as a as a team. You've got a, a teammate who's been a long-term friend. How does it go from sort of uh, starting with a spit at a 21st birthday 
into like, study to get into competition barbecue. And I know you've had a few call-ups. You've been pretty humble about that, but I've been to a couple of those South Australian uh, competitions and, I've, and, and I know you've had a, like quite a few good call-ups. How do you sort of transition from that into um, manufacturing the rubs? Well, um, I guess, so when we sort of, sort of started the team, like Matt and I, we're both really into, um, you know, animal production, but also just, you know, growing your own food in general. Um, we're not like hippies about it or anything like that, but I just, you know, I grew up eating a lot of homegrown produce. Uh, I come from a, uh, I'm a half Italian. So I come from a, a bit an Italian background, you know, mum and, um, dad, you know, we used to do tomato day and, we grow our own salads and things like that in the backyard, you know, have chooks, kill our own chooks and things like that. And uh, I've got um, a lot of relatives in country South Australia. So I grew up around the country and um, yeah, I guess I was growing a lot of chilies and um, uh, onions and garlic and things that you can like, you know, uh, grow a lot of, but then what do you do with them? So I was already making, <laughs> I, was, I was already making heaps of like dehydrated, um, spices so lots of chili powder and, and things like that and um and then barbecue scene came along and it was probably listening to one of your early podcasts or just you know just consuming so much barbecue content and people talking about making their own rubs and then we were just like oh uh, wouldn't it be awesome to compete with like our own homemade rubs which we grew ourselves um so that's where we just started dabbling uh, but then like, I, I think once you go down that rabbit hole, you, you get stuck pretty quickly. So oh, yeah. then I just started <laughs> buying all sorts of exotic ingredients and like researching it. And, um, it re- just really tickled my fancy in terms of, you know, coming up with your own blend and, and then we just really, uh, I just started sharing it with people. Um, you know, I've probably given out a few, oh, I'd be close to hundred odd jars of rubs to family and friends and tweaked it here, got feedback there, um, you know, and then just serious encouragement from, you know, some good friends in the SA barbecue scene saying, mate, you should think about, you know, selling these, they're, they're good. Um, you know, guys like Russ from Natural Smoke and um, Kelly Waldock, who's a, a really good young uh, butcher in South Australia. And, um, you know, they've been pestering me basically to the point where I was like, okay, I'll, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and we'll, we'll get these out and put them in the market. Yeah, cool. Now, you just mentioned um, Russ from Natural Smoke there. Were you cooking mm. with him um, when I went to the Adelaide competition? Uh, yeah, up, he up in was Smoke? in our tent. Mm. Yeah, he, right. was, he was just hanging out with us really. Um, I've invited him to be on the team heaps of times, but he's he's a bit of a social butterfly. So I think he just prefers to just be able to, you know, wander off whenever he, whenever he feels like it to chat to people. Uh, so it's a bit hard to nail him down to be a, a teammate. But, um, yeah, he's a good mate. And um, we we just, you know, it's just one of those friendships that you build in the barbecue scene. Um, he liked what I was cooking. Uh, I liked playing around with all these different flavours. I was already cooking in a tomato, doing a lot of, you know, a lot of different um, wood smoking. Uh, and then we just got chatting and then he was just developing his natural smoke um, uh, business. And um, then we just started, he just started throwing different wood at me, you know. I was just testing out every, everything under the sun to, you know, jujube and uh, melaleuca and all, all this sort of awesome, you know, locally sourced um, smoking wood that he, he just needed to find out information about. So. 
And then ever since then, we've just had, yeah, really good friendship. He's a great guy to work with. So, Mate, that's so cool. I, I think when I when I came past, it was uh, during the SCA time and you guys Ooh, were out there yeah. with um, big big old irons, I think. Did yeah, you yeah, use yeah, an iron yeah. as, a, as a steak press? Yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah, yeah mate. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. It was cool. <laughs> it was searing. So you're, yeah. So your your rubs, do they still actually have your homegrown chilies and things in them? Look, they don't. Um, to to do it on that kind of scale, I just don't have the uh, the capacity to grow as much like raw ingredients as possible. So, yeah, um, they're still still our exact blends. Um, although you know during the development phase uh, with the uh, the supplier, you know we had to do a couple of back back and forths because obviously you know as you know, like salt isn't just salt or no. cayenne pepper isn't just um, red chili powder or, you know, that sort of thing. So we had a few back and forths. Um, to, to be able to do this, we've gone through a co-packer. Um, so uh, Stag & Co based on the Mornington Peninsula. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so we're releasing um, uh, the rubs uh, through those guys um, and that's basically allowing us to do it. Um, you know, I've got the time to do the testing and the uh, the ingredients and and the the marketing and all of the uh, online stuff, but um, the manufacturing and registration and all the um, red tape associated with that uh, and logistics, it, I wouldn't have been able to do it if I didn't do it in a partnership with those guys. So um, they've been great. They're doing the butcher's axe range and the badass barbecue range. So um, yeah, it's been really cool and getting to know those those other guys as well has been great. So. Yeah, they're they're really supportive of a lot of the uh, barbecue teams out there that are doing all their rubs and things at the moment. Yeah. And you, you're absolutely right. Like if you, if you're looking at getting into rubs and you don't have a co-packer, you're quadrupling, pentupling the amount yeah. of work that you got to do. So 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 the skinny of it is as well is that um, you know if I'm buying it in my small handcrafted amounts uh, of of um, raw ingredients, I can't even bottle it up. Um, uh, cheaper than than you can on a commercial scale. It's just as simple as that. Um, so, you know, I looked at it and I was like, I'm just causing myself a heap of work here. I'm not really saving any time. What I want to be doing is spending all that time cooking, working on new rubs, um, developing new flavours. Um, just quietly in the works is a, a possibly a baking cure product as well that we want to um, go down uh the track with so you know i can't i can't i don't it's a side gig for me you know i can't do all that sort of stuff if i'm bottling up jars of rub every night so yeah no no although if your wife's a doctor you probably could if you wanted to oh yeah could, could <laughs> danger? No, I, I love my danger too much <laughs> yeah 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 good stuff so Tell us about the range then. I, I actually thought that the baking queue was already out. I thought that was a done, uh, no, done deal. Uh, I've been using the Misty Gully stuff a little bit and um, I did a baking video with the Misty Gully baking queue, which is, which is a really good product. Off. Yeah, and, and that's, a, that's a good product. I, I liked a lot, but we just want to put our own spin on it really because I've, I've done a lot of homemade bacon since we started down this barbecue adventure. So, um, you know, I'm keen to, um, you know, uh, offer something a little bit different in terms of a bacon cure. But, um, yeah, the two rubs, we've got Risket, which is a SPG-based uh, sort of all-purpose red meat-style rub. Um, and then we've got Sweet Dreams, which is, um, you know, your, your sort of typical sweet, spicy, 
little bit more targeted at um, white meat and seafood. So sort of covering the, you know, most of the proteins in these first two rubs. Um, but we've got a third one in development um, uh, called Game On. And that is, look, it, it, it's going to be good on lamb and game and things like that. But it's just, it's like a Middle Eastern influenced uh, spice rub. Interesting. And, um, yeah, and it, and it it doesn't just go on lamb and game. Like I've been using it on chicken. Uh, Russ did a uh, a focaccia bread with it on it the other night that was unbelievable. And Fantastic. Yeah, it's just got a lot of really good wholesome spices. Like we're trying to keep these pretty natural, so no uh, no MSG, no sort of artificial flavorings, anything like that. Um, not that there isn't a place for those. Like these are these are definitely more. Um, targeted, you know, for people using them at, at home and, and cooking with yeah, them all yeah. the time and, you know, just winning winning competitions. Um, there's there's definitely rubs that are much more designed for, you know, competition barbecue. So that's cool. Yeah, well, that's a, that is an interesting, um, an interesting point. You know, when you are developing rubs, do you, do you aim for the competition market or do mm. you aim for the backyard market? I was having this discussion with, uh, with somebody else and I said, and I said to them, I said, listen, we've got, what, 250 teams, four, four people on a team, there's maybe a thousand people. Yeah. But like a, a thousand barbecue competitors in Australia. Now, how many backyard barbecuers are there? Mm-hmm. And exactly. I, yeah. That was the way that I was looking at it. Yeah. We, we just didn't sort of, we, we didn't just think about it like that. We just wanted something that tastes good primarily. You know what I mean? Um, but if you're going to, I think it's more important when, when you do make the decision to say that this is a competition barbecue rub, you know, it's really got to deliver something pretty high powered and pretty unique. And I think it's almost essential for it to have MSG in it. Like whether you like MSG or not, I think the comp rubs, you're going to have to have that or some sort of really high umami content, maybe some vinegar powder, you know, whatever it is, which could be a little bit over, off-putting if you put it over a whole roast chicken. Um, mm. But, you know, yeah, when, yeah. when that judge in the tent is going to have one bite of your, uh, your chicken thigh, and that's it. It's got to be pretty special. So mm. I think, um, yeah, I think we've just decided to go for something that's going to be, um, you know, all round, taste good. You can use it at comps. I mean, we've been using the the Sweet Dreams uh, at, at comps for the last 12 months. Um, and we've done all right with it. It hasn't, hasn't taken out a, a placing yet, but we've had a couple of, a couple of shout outs, so a couple of top tens with it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's perfectly fine to use in that sort of, situations yeah i i think you're right onto something there when it when it does come to bacon i i love doing homemade bacon as well i just i just did a batch about two weeks ago put yep. it through the slicer mm. um do you prefer to do like a, a a natural cure or do you put all the the nitrates nitrites and all that sort of stuff in it so i don't have a problem with using nitrites for me it's about um food safety at the end of the day um especially if you're doing it at home um Maybe you are more careful than the, than a commercial processor. Maybe you're not, but there is a reason why nearly all commercial bacon uses nitrites, and that's for food safety. Because even if you're hot smoking it and cooking it, uh, you you won't kill everything. Uh, but the nitrites are there to get that last little point oh one percent. The sodium nitrite also reacts with them with the protein uh, in the pork belly and gives it that pink color as well. So. You know, when used properly, nitrites are at at an extremely safe level. Um, You know, for me, it's only benefits. Um, You know, I I think because if you do, 
you know, accidentally consume excess sodium nitrite, it can be, you know, a, a, a dangerous thing. But um, used properly, uh, you know, it's no different to using um, salt, really. Um, it's just, yeah. Obviously, you'd need to have a lot of salt to have the same health effects as, you know, straight nitrites. But, yeah, it's as essential in my mind to have that in your bacon cure. Well, I was, I was about to ask, so are you trying to tell me that there is such a thing as too much bacon? <laughs> no, 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 no way, no way, never. Bacon makes everything better, all right? That's yeah, it's a known fact. Got a project you'd like to work on with the SHC team? Shoot Ben an email on ben at smokinghotconfessions.com and let's have a conversation. Alrighty, so in this next section, I wanted to get into um, cattle and their diets and all that sort of stuff, as you are um, an, an expert in, in agriculture and primary production. But let's, let's um, start with, the, with first things first. What effect has, has COVID had on the beef industry? Because my understanding is that it, it's had quite an impact in terms of exports. Mm, yeah, 100%. So, I mean, a lot of the export channels, you know, Australia is a net exporter of beef. We, we produce more than we consume in this country and export you know, for nearly all of our agricultural products is, is really important. Um, but I guess at the end of the day, um, a couple of things have happened, you know, uh, we've had a combination of uh, restaurants shutting. So a lot of that really uh, high-end beef that's uh, sold by wholesalers has um, uh, not been going to the restaurants. So it's become available to the, to the public to buy through, you know, not just, uh, you know, your, your secretive back channels, but like, you know, your, your everyday butcher shops are getting some really, really premium beef products in now that they normally don't have access to. Um, the, uh, the other thing is, is that uh, when COVID came on, um, obviously a lot more people are buying meat from their butcher shops, whether it's uh, people crazily panic buying mints or, or, or whatever it is, people are cooking a lot more from home. Um, so, um, beef consumption's, you know, probably gone up, uh, and that's somewhat compensated a little bit for our, uh, losses in terms of exporting to, uh, you know, premium international markets. Um, one thing I will say, so, you know, leading up to, uh, COVID, uh, beef cattle prices were at the highest they've been for several years. Um, but a lot of that was to do with the prolonged drought in uh, a lot of um, the parts of Australia. So, you know, uh, Queensland, New South Wales were coming out of really, really long drought, dry periods, um, you know, getting some rain in sort of uh, February, March. But, um, you know, herd numbers are pretty low. Um, if we'd have gone into COVID with uh, a couple of really good years on our, on, on our backs uh, with a surplus of cattle, um, that would have been an absolutely massive disaster um they would just would have wouldn't have had any destination to go you know like we saw um you know uh five or six years ago when they they sort of stopped trade overnight to indonesia with the live exports um you know whether that was the right reason or not that's not really for discussion but at the same time you got a whole lot of cattle there that now aren't getting fed they were destined to be processed and they can't be processed anymore so you have a big problem but i think um yeah, the cattle prices have dipped a little bit, but they've, they've still remained pretty high because, you know, domestic production's been up. Um, and, you know, uh, a, lot of, a lot of it's done in regional areas. Everyone's pretty isolated as it is already. And, um, you know, uh, food production uh, at the base level, uh, not, not so much, you know, food service industries like restaurants, but 
food production is an essential service. So most farmers I know and, uh, you know, cattle growers, cattle buyers, sellers, um, you know, uh, meat work workers and things like that um, have had it, you know, um, go pretty consistently since, since the COVID restrictions. Interesting. Yeah. I, I pretty much figured that, um, that, that exports would have been down and so there would have been more, more beef on the, on the domestic market, but Mm. prices don't seem to have gone down. I thought that, uh, that with excess supply, that prices would go down so people would buy more and, uh, prices in my part of, of, uh, of Australia at least have gone through the roof. Yeah. Um, and, and a fair bit of that's to do with the panic buying, um, and what people are buying. So I, I brought up mints for an example, you know, before, and, and I've, I've got good friends who are butchers and, you know, all of a sudden there's a, um, you know, a skewed demand for a type of product. Um, you know, butchers, um, supermarkets, whoever it is, they're going to try and meet that demand. But when you don't have any more uh, chuck or brisket or, um, you know, uh, trimming to turn into mints, well, the better cuts of beef have to start getting turned into mints. Same thing with lamb, same thing with pork. Um, you know, so I, there wasn't a great excess of supply to begin with. And then when, you know, when consumption increases three, four, five-fold overnight because people are going crazy buying food, um, you know, it, it sort of really puts a strain on an already uh, difficult market. So you got the combination of... Um, the value of products um, haven't haven't really decreased, and then the demand's gone up. So, I, I think we're lucky that we haven't even seen uh, the beef get even more expensive. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, we've still got good supply, and that's what we should be really, really thankful about. I don't think any of the processors or or supermarkets or butchers are taking anyone for a raw. They're just um, their 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 prices are where, where they have to be. Um, yeah. yeah, fair enough. It it does make me sad though, and sort of I I don't know if you heard me gasp before, but it 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 does make me sad when I think about a whole ribeye just being ploughed through a mincer. Yes, yes, <laughs> it's not cool. But you know what? It's, it's it's probably not enough fat for for good mince anyway. So. Nah, nah, probably not. Probably but, not. You know, people going crazy. I, I I tell you what, I'll tell you this right now. When the panic buying started, or when I started buying up meat, I wasn't buying mince. I was buying, I was buying scotch fillets because I'm like that, you know, if there's going to be a meat shortage, um, I want to be able to grab a steak out of the freezer, you know, whenever I feel like a steak. So I was like, well, butchers are going to be selling out and supply is going to dribble up. I'm more worried about my steaks than my, my mince filled with spaghetti bolognese. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Plus, you know, you can use them for currency once they run out. <laughs> yeah, it's like a like a gold brick, mate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They uh they do say that um that, that a lot of people hide their riches in their freezer. So no, I there you I, go. I hadn't heard that one yet, but I do have a little bit. Oh, of, do have maybe a the bit most mayorization in my freezer at the moment. So you know, <laughs> it's probably similar. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. So just just bringing it back to barbecue. Let's mm. let's talk about um cattle and their diets and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. The, there's a few questions that, that I want to hit first. What is the best breed of cattle for barbecue? Oh, mate, that's such a highly contentious question. Um, I know. That's why I brought it up. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there is necessary. Uh, well, I guess let's start with are you talking competitions or home cooking? Um, you know, competitions, way use very popular because of the uh, 
the, the meat profile, the meat structure uh, in that particular animal because uh, you're looking at, you know, single bites, very small tastings uh, and wow factor. Um, home cooking wise, uh, I mean, I love Wagyu, mate, but I'm not, I don't want to sit down to a steak of it, you know, any more than once every month because it's just so rich. You can only eat so much of it. So, yeah, I don't know. But w- what I'll probably uh, caveat that with is um, uh, in my mind, I think looking at good suppliers and, and good reliable brands is, is a better option um, simply because when you are buying sort of any beef, uh, the breed is to me less important as the supplier or the supply chain because, you know, you can have unlabeled Wagyu beef. Yeah, it might have come from a Wagyu cow, but you don't know the region it was produced in. You don't know the background behind the herd genetics. You don't know what the diet was. You know it's Wagyu. They're marketing it because of the the type of cattle. But you know uh, a branded Wagyu product that you know the history behind, that you know where it's produced, and comes in a consistent quality uh, is going to be you know much more reliable than just buying on you know whether it's Wagyu or Angus or Shorthorn or Brahman or whatever. Um, I think looking at quality suppliers is is um, where I'd start. You know. Yeah, good advice there. I know sometimes I go to the butcher and I see Wagyu packaged in a, in a, in a steak and I look at it and I go, yeah, I don't know if that's, if that uh, yeah. is Wagyu. It doesn't yeah. really look like Wagyu. It must be pretty, pretty lean Wagyu. <laughs> look, and here's the thing, definitely could be Wagyu, um, but what goes into those cattle is just as important as the breeds. Just because you don't have, uh, just because you have a Wagyu cow doesn't mean it's going to have crazy intramuscular marbling you know there's still a lot of variability in the quality of the cattle based on feed source uh, production techniques and genetics so wagyu is a breed but uh you know different wagyu herds are using different stock genetics and the genetics of those individual specific herds uh can make a big difference so yeah it could be wagyu just not very good wagyu yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I'm I'm not sure where to start. Then should we start with diet or should we start with genetics? Oh, either either either. Well, while we're talking about breeds, we might as well stick with genetics. Um, yeah. Cool. You know, um, and I think um, the cattle industry uh, one of the most overlooked factors is is how much is invested in the genetics of um, uh, the, the the breeds of cattle. Uh, some some breeds have risen to more prominence. Um, you know, say Angus, for example, has been, you know, on the rise, extremely popular for probably the last decade. Uh, and that's because of a couple of reasons. One is marketing. Um, at the end of the day, nothing wrong with a bit of good marketing. Um, but two, a lot of the Angus uh, producers have focused extremely carefully on, on the genetics of, of their herds, um, selecting cattle with, you know, uh, more regular high marble scoring. Um, you know, quicker, more rapid weight gain, better feed conversion weights. So, you know, getting more bang for your buck with what you're putting into the cow resulting in live weight gain. Because, you know, at the end of the day, these animals need to perform uh, in the paddock on on what they're supplied uh, to produce you good beef on the plate. So, you know, uh, a lot of these um, uh, bigger breeds have uh, obviously uh, invested within their own breed societies and within groups of um, animal producers that are 
you know, sharing or selling or developing the genetics. Um, it's, it's very, very technical stuff. And, and I'm, I'm the plant guy. So I start at the feed base. My speciality is in, in the pastures. So I can't speak in ridiculous depth about, you know, uh, genetic profiling and everything like that. Um, but it blows me away whenever I see, um, you know, talk to the animal genetics guys. Uh, it's, it's seriously high tech stuff. I, I did just have one, one question and look, it, it may mm. be a completely silly question. Mm. You mentioned that they, um, that they will breed the animals based on a consistent marbling score. Mm-hmm. Now, don't they only find out the marbling score after the animal's been processed? Mm. Yeah, so every, how, how, I'll tell you how, Ben, because every single this doesn't happen with sheep, this doesn't happen with pigs, not not um, all the animals in the in the supply chain. Every single uh, Australian produced cattle is electronically ID'd, uh, and from that electronic ID, uh, that means they know the kill weight, they know the carcass, and they can wow. basically yeah, so they can get the information of that cow's genetic history. So, uh, you know, what bull semen was used, uh, what, um, uh, what uh, heifer it carved from, and then they can look at what that resulted in weight on the hook, uh, marble score, you know, um, meat density, all these different factors, um, and they translate them into what's called estimated breeding values. Um, and it's, it's basically a... Uh, uh, a cons- consistent scoring profile for the genetic uh, quality of of that uh, a particular cow. So um, you know, for example, a lot of the uh, a lot of the herds are um, artificially inseminated these days. Or when you're producing your uh, your main breeding cows, you you're often actually purchasing bull semen. Not not every uh, cattle producer will ha- will use their own bulls. Um, and AI is also um, you know, generally uh, uh, more reliable for conception anyway. So if these people are paying uh, really big money for, for really good quality genetics because uh, it's, it's, you know, one of the most important factors in being a successful cattle producer is making sure that you've got the genetics of your herd, you know, in the right place. God, there's so many questions to ask there. So <laughs> I know, man, I know. It's so do they... So they've they've got these these electronic tags. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they tag the genetic history of the animal. Mm-hmm. So after it's been processed, they can evaluate the 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 meat on the hook, and obviously then they choose from the offspring that that animal has already produced to then no. breed future generations. No, they just look at the parents. So you can go and trace back to one uh, one bull and look at the performance of all his progeny, and then. His performance is based on that of his progeny. So right. then you just use that bull again. You just go or, back to the source. Yeah, so you pick pick the best bull. And then, yeah, maybe, um, you know, when when uh, uh, you find the best, uh, the best cow, the best, best heifer to pair with that bull and you need to sort of replenish or, or look for improvements in your breeding stock, then, you know, if you think you've got yourself a good bull on your hands, you try him over a bunch of different females and, and, and assess the, the uh, quality of the progeny there. So um, let me put it to you this way. There's, there's some pretty, pretty handy bulls out there that have gotten 
gotten a lot of lot of four-legged ladies knocked up in their lifetimes like some of them are quite prodigious um and i think in fact if you can i think i heard something like um nearly every single full-blood wagyu cow can be traced back at one point in time you know thousands of years ago to one original bull really Mm. but you know we obviously haven't been able to capture that genetic data over those thousands of years but now they definitely do um, capture that genetic data wow okay so not to not to oversimplify things too much but is it is it a matter of you look to the to the bulls for things like um, predicting how much weight and how much meat those particular cows will create mm-hmm. and it's it and the the heifer is less important or is that is that oversimplifying uh, things too much uh, yes and no um, I mean obviously um, uh, in terms of the heifers, often they're selected for slightly different characteristics, like um, their ability to um, uh, have calving, uh, ease of calving. So that's another breeding value that gets looked at. Um, how easily do they carve down? You know, are there problems with um, uh, with birthing and things like that? So you want you want heifers that are going to carry calves well and carve down easily. Um, and at the end of the day. It is like it is with anything. Um, if they're not performing, or if they, uh, you know, they they have one season and and the progeny aren't aren't deemed to be successful, well, you know, they're they're your older older cows that probably get turned into burger meat. But um, yeah, it's it's definitely uh, going to be something that you keep try and keep fairly consistent. The thing is, is that um, you know, one bull can uh, basically um, artificially inseminate a lot of cows. Um, uh, but not the other way around. You know, she's only going to calf down once a year. So, yeah, right. Of course, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so from what you've been saying, it sounds like the cattle industry has kind of um looked at the horse racing industry and yeah, sort of uh, borrowed a lot of the ideas and the concepts from them. Is mm. that is that the way it's heading, or is that just my my layman's this, take on it? Look, Ben, this is not new stuff. They've been, you know, this is just modern animal husbandry it's been happening for thousands of years just by farmers doing it by eyeball and just using their gut instincts now we can you know track it on a spreadsheet and um and do all sorts of fancy data crunching and everything like that but um you know at the end of the day it's it's been a very important factor for a long time and and in particular in you know pure bloodline uh cattle herds where they're you know they're all um uh, full blood and, and the breed of one uh, the uh, genetics of one single breed. So, I'm going to hit you with a with a bit of a personal question mm-hmm. um, from uh, for, for myself. Personal question for myself, not a personal question for you. <laughs> no, okay. um, so, when I was growing up on a farm, Murray Gray was the brand mm-hmm. or, or or the breed, I should say. Mm. And we actually had a we had a Murray Gray bull at at one stage. He was just muscle on top of muscle. He was just yeah. a complete axe of a of an animal. Yeah, and but now everyone seems to talk about Angus, and you never hear about Murray Gray anymore. Is that just marketing, or is or is Black Angus um, consistently producing better meat than the Murray Gray? It's probably a serious combination of the two. Um, look, Murray Gray is a pretty sort of resilient cattle, uh, and they still have their place. Like um, you know, there's quite a lot of breeds there uh, that are out there. They're in they're smaller in number. Um, but you know, uh, Australia's got some pretty um, pretty harsh environments for grazing animals, and some breeds tend to do a little bit better in areas of of you know lesser quality pastures or, or things like that. Um, 
interesting you say about Murray Grays because they actually originated as a cross between an Aberdeen Angus and a Shorthorn. So oh, really? They're, a, they're what's called a stabilised breed, but they actually originated as an accidental uh, cross between two species. So they're at the essence half Angus anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah. There you go. All right. Fair yeah, enough. Yeah, yeah. So let's swing it back to your to your wheelhouse a bit. You said that mm. you're the you're the diet man for for cattle. Tell us about um, how important it is. What's the best thing for them to eat? All that sort of stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't I don't do the dieting like I'm not an animal nutritionist. But what I do is I uh, recommend pastures. So I recommend uh, for them. I guess what to. Um, uh, what farmers should grow to provide, I guess, the raw materials for, for, the, um, for the animals to be consuming. Um, and I guess it comes down to a range of different things, you know. Um, when you look at cattle, they're what's called a ruminant anim- animal, so they have more than one stomach. Um, so feed quality uh, is a pretty important factor uh, because, you know, monogastric animals like ourselves or, you know, dogs, cats, horses, um, you know, most other mammals are monogastric as in they have one stomach. Um, We can sort of gorge ourselves or go through starvation periods, uh, eat, um, (laughs) no, I I know, I know, I prefer (laughs) that too as well. Um, I'm much more in the pro-eating camp. Um, But, you know, we're we're foragers and uh, um, we we look for, you know, foods with high caloric uh, indexes and and high digestibility as part of how we've evolved. But, um, but with cattle, um, the way their stomachs configured is to, is to process a feed source with a very, very high fiber content. Uh, and they actually go through a, um, uh, a, uh, fermentation process in their foregut where bacteria break down the cell structure so they can extract the nutrients from, uh, the fibrous feed sources, you know, like grasses and, and things like that. Um, but the limiting factor to that is it takes time. So cattle can only consume on average about 3% of their body weight per day in feed. Um, wow. So when it comes to having quality feed, you can have grass that just grows, uh, that has you know our equivalent of the nutritive value of cardboard, or you can have good quality <laughs> grass or mixed with legumes and, you know, it has the, um, you know, a much higher, you know, well-balanced nutritional value. Um, both of them are probably going to pass through the animal in the same amount of time. Uh, so if you're blocking up this animal with poor quality feed, it's uh, taking all this effort to digest it, yet there's really no nutritive value in there, um, you're not going to get weight gains on your cattle. So it's important to have... Um, for my role is to to help growers choose what pastures they can grow in their climatic areas because we've got a very diverse range of climates here in Australia. So you grow a very diverse range of different species. Um, but bet, to best suit what they can produce uh, in terms of the feed base for their animals uh, in, the, in their environment. Um, so things that you need generally in terms of a pasture base for uh, for cattle, sort of varies depending on what stage of their growing cycle in their, in their lifespan that they are. So you need very, very high quality food um, for young uh, animals to carve down on. 
because they're usually carving down with their um, their mothers, and so their mothers are lactating. They need a high value feed source uh, to go along with it as well. Um, then you go through a bit of a period um, where uh, probably high quality pasture is not as important because the animal's going through you know our sort of equivalent of our pre prepubescent phase where we're actually building a structure on the animal. Um, so you're building up the frame, the skeletal structure and everything like that just to carry all those muscles. Um, and then because we like to have our nice marbled steaks and, and, and big cuts of meat and everything like that, they go through into what's called a finishing phase. Uh, and usually that finishing phase is where um, a lot of grain and, and very digestible but high in protein and, and high in carbohydrate food sources get introduced into their diet because you want to create like an excess of energy, uh, which then gets converted into fat. And that's what gives that marbling. Interesting. So mm. if we're, if we're judging it by, um, by intramuscular fat in, uh, in steak, mm-hmm. um, cause that's where, where most people think of it in terms of like their ribeyes and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I guess I, I, I realise you just said that it gets very specific by breed and region and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Can, are you able to give us a bit of a general idea of what they should be eating in, in each of those phases? So in the, in the junior phase, they need 30% grass, 20% legume. Like, is it, is it broken down like that? It is. Um, it sort of depends. Like if it's a pasture paddock where they're out actually physically grazing it, definitely want to have a good legume component in there. It's a highly digestible uh, protein source. Um, but a good grass base um, is, is also important as well. Um, I guess um, in, in some operations, you can't always provide that year round. So that's where things like, um, you know, growing feed to store as hay or silage uh, become really important because, you know, for example, if you're a dry land cattle operation in, you know, uh, country South Australia where five months of the year it just doesn't rain. Um, they can, you know, grow and uh, have a fair bit of dry feed, you know, just um, hayed off in the paddock, which is still reasonably good quality. But once that's gone, um, you know, you have to start feeding out hay. And you grow a bulk of that in the end of winter and spring when we've actually got moisture available. So, you know, the diet can sort of change from from day to day, but usually focusing on, you know, somewhere between 30 to 40 non-digestible fibre uh, in, in a mixed ration. Um, and it, it really sort of depends from there, they're in or they're out. Um, if you have a large legume component, uh, you probably don't need to supplement with as much grain in a, in a ration feeding situation. But if you've only got mainly a grass component, you can supplement with a little bit more grain or you know, some oil seed or something like that. It's higher in protein. I see. So I, I gather then from from what you've been saying there that um, that if I were to ask you what was better, grass fed, grass fed or grain fed, you'd say a mix. Well, it, even most of your grass fed um, beef spends at least a period of its time being finished on grain, or will at some stage have a small grain supplement into their diet like throughout the year or throughout the uh, animal's lifetime. I think it only has to be about 80% um, of the feed source has to be straight pasture. Um, Interesting. And, and at the same time, uh, even grain-fed or grain-finished 
uh, beef doesn't necessarily spend its entirety of its life on straight grain. Um, it's it's usually a, a, a component of their total diet. I mean, if you, um, for example, just fed cattle straight grain with no roughage, it, it'd be like a human being um, just eating chocolate only. Um, Doesn't I, sound I, so bad. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'd give <laughs> Actually, you a, chocolate I'd, gives me migraine, so I don't. I don't yeah, want that. No, I'd give. I'd give. I'd give most people about a week eating, <laughs> yeah. eating straight chocolate, and I reckon you'd be you'd be uh, pretty sick of it. Um, yeah. You know, in terms of what it does to the digestive system and and everything like that, you need a you need a real balance. Um, and I guess this is this is one of those um, this is one of those reasons where I sort of swing back to what we spoke about earlier about, about producers and brands. Um, for me, I'm not hundred percent sold on either grass fed or grain fed. Look, they, they definitely have some key attributes that you, you get in some instances where, you know, you have a significant characteristic of one or the other, you know, like your grain fed or grain finished beef generally tends to have, you know, that whiter colored fat and a higher marble score. Um, but that's mainly because when you grain feed, you're generally going to get a higher marble score. You're, you're conditioning the animal in that finishing phase to have a higher marble score. Uh, and the white fat is generally from, uh, feeding grains like barley or wheat. Um, and it's preferable in, in, in certain markets, uh, around the world. Whereas, um, you know, pasture fed animals, often they have a bit less marbling, um, that's because they're often killed younger. Uh, so they don't necessarily always get the time to develop that marble score in that finishing phase. They finish up on the pasture and then instead of going into a feedlot, or maybe they do go into a feedlot, but for only 30 days instead of 150 days, and then they still get to get called pasture-fed beef. So, um, you know, they don't necessarily get the time to produce that marble score. They have that yellowier coloured fat. Um, which is from their diet. So grass-based pastures uh, and some grains like corn that contain um, high levels of beta-carotene. Um, so it's a B protein that um, is stored in the fat when consumed in excess. And then that's what gives that, you know, that um, slightly yellowish hue to the, um, uh, the pasture-fed uh, beef. But really, I mean, taste-wise, I... <laughs> You can achieve really high-level marble scores on pasture-fed beef. It's just very difficult to do 12 months of the year around growing pastures. You know, like I said, the quality of the pasture changes throughout the year based on the climatic conditions. To get a really reliable, consistent product, you really have to be doing supplemental feeding if you want to supply a product 12 months of the year. So, you know, I, I don't think it... Yeah, you can label the all pasture-fed beef in one bucket and all grain-fed beef in another bucket. Uh, if you go to a individual supplier or brand level, um, you'll have much more of an idea on the specific diet and what they mean by saying grain-fed or pasture-fed. You can look into it. You know, you know, spend your fifty bucks plus a kilo on some pretty hot steak. You might as well do your research about the brand. Uh, that you're purchasing and and what the, the feed source is for their animals. You're listening to the internationally awarded Smoking Hot Confessions podcast 
with massive barbecue nerd Ben Arnott. All right, so we've established that you're uh, quite the man in the know of what happens at the start of the uh, of the cow's existence. Mm. Let's talk about the very end of the cooking phase now. Let's go right to the other end. So I, I thought we, it, that it might be nice if you share some tips with us about um, about resting the meats after you finish cooking them. So we're going right to the other end of the scale. Mm. Yeah, look, I mean, there's... Obviously, most people know that, you know, after you finish that cooking process that you should uh, rest your meat. Um, you know, a lot of that is to do with moisture retention um, and letting and letting that moisture be absorbed back into those muscular fibres that have tensed up during the cooking process. When you rest the meat, it allows those muscular fibres to relax and the moisture to be retained back into the meat. Um, but... One thing that one little angle about resting meat that I really wanted to bring up was um, uh, just a little hot tip for people cooking at home mainly and, and more so than competitions. And that is, I don't know about you, Ben, but um, I've got some fussy people in my family that always need to eat at an exact time. Like if you said dinner was at seven o'clock, I want meat on the table at seven o'clock, right? And we all know. <laughs> We all know that when we're cooking a brisket or cooking pork or, or whatever it is, you know, these low and slow cooks, um, they don't always necessarily go to clockwork. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the time you'll be resting your brisket or your, your pork butt or whatever for about an hour anyway. If you have it wrapped in a couple of layers of foil under a towel in an esky, you can realistically rest that thing for up to four hours. Uh, and so I usually like to build in a fair bit of resting time into my cooks. So if I'm going to cook a brisket, I'm familiar with my smoker at home. I know it takes about eight hours to do because I'm wrapping it. Um, I want to try and work out that's going to come off my smoker about two hours before I'm going to eat instead of one. And then that way, if it takes a bit longer, I've got room to move. If it finishes up a bit shorter, I know I can still rest it for longer. Either way, that's like, you know, one, one of the best things that I've sort of worked out in terms of this whole low and slow cooking. When everyone asks you, whenever you start doing content, first question is always time and temp. And if I want to eat at six, uh, what time should I put my brisket on? And I always say, go back two hours and then work back your cook time from there. Um, so, yeah, that's my little hot tip. Yeah, you mentioned there um, the idea of wrapping it in foil and then towels and and putting it in a dry esky. Mm. That's one of the things that I came across a little while ago, and that has saved my bacon heaps of times. Yes, because you know there there will be times where things come off early. Yes, and, oh, and for it, sure. it'll be it, it'll be three or four hours early, and then you're like, well, what do I do with this now? Yeah. People aren't going to be here for another two and a half hours. Yeah, yeah, especially double when... foil, double towel, dry esky. It'll uh, hold temperature for ages. Yeah, it's it's great. Like you just keep it in that nice, red, um, you know, insulated environment. Um, and if you don't have a you know a dry esky around or whatever, obviously not with it switched on, but you can put it in the oven um, or in the microwave. They're both actually quite insulative. Um, just don't turn them on, obviously. But you know, <laughs> if you need a, if you just need a box to put your meat in, then you know you can you can use what's found in every kitchen, basically. Um, Fantastic stuff, yeah. yeah. All right, well, look, that's probably a good place to uh, to to start to close out this episode. So the studio's yours. Let's uh, let's have you throw out some thanks and some shout outs and tell everybody where they can track you down on the socials. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Um, so, yeah, Smoky Pastures Barbecue, and that's Smoky with no E. Uh, that's a 
very common one. Um, I don't, I don't really know which is the correct spelling, but we went with, uh, with no E. Um, we're on Facebook, uh, Instagram, and we've got a YouTube channel. We're trying to bring out content sort of as regular as we can, but it's really about, um, helping you do, uh, all sorts of cooking at home. Um, in terms of shout outs, uh, shout out to, uh, the whole South Aussie barbecue scene and our Facebook group. I reckon it's, it's one of the best, uh, barbecue Facebook groups going around in terms of positivity and encouragement. Um, thanks to Matt, my teammate, uh, and I said, I'd give Russ a shout out from natural smoke. Uh, or I think I did earlier in the episode and, um, <laughs> another good guy to keep an eye on in South Australia is Aaron Palmer from low and slow basics. Uh, he's got a, a bit of a ripping YouTube channel going on as well. So, um, but other than that, yeah, thanks for having me on, mate. It's been a pleasure. Mate, thank you. I'll have you back again anytime. Good on you, Ben. Thank you. And there you have it, family. That was Tom Dammon, the pitmaster of Smoky Pastures Barbecue and an expert in agriculture and primary production. So we've had a really deep dive into the world of beef and cattle and hopefully clarified a few of the things for you on that never-ending grass grain-fed beef thing. And how good was that Was that little tip at the end for, uh, for, for resting meat at the end? I've got to tell you, double foil towel dry esky works every time. So make sure you jump on their, on their website, follow them on the socials. He does have that, uh, that Kraken YouTube channel that he was talking about before. There's some really nice content over on there. Go over there, give them a follow and hit that little notification bell for them as well. And while you're at it, if you have enjoyed today's show and you're listening on a podcast app, please take a minute and leave a rating and review for us. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure to hit subscribe and ring that bell for notifications. If you're watching on Facebook, give us a like and a share. And if you're watching on IGTV, give us a heart and a follow as well. We really appreciate it. And so that's all we have for you for today. So until next time, take care of each other and keep on queuing. Thanks for listening to the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. Head on over to smokinghotconfessions.com for recipes, tips, and Ben's own confessions.